Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. With all the talk of building a more inclusive workplace, we hear the term ally a lot. But what does it mean to be an ally and how does that enable our organizations to thrive? Everything that's happened this past year, from the pandemic to the violence and cries for racial justice and equity, have finally shown many people the disparities that exist and forced them to confront privilege for the first time. Whether the privilege of a pandemic-proof white-collar job or the ability to access high-speed internet for your kids doing school from home. Allyship at work is how each and every one of us on an individual level can support and empower underrepresented groups to ensure everyone can thrive at work. And that only leads to more goodness for the company. Today, author Karen Catlin and I will be discussing how to be a real ally, what allyship means, and a shocking new way to look at privilege in your life. She shares practical tips on how to be an ally in your everyday interactions, thus creating a more engaged, inclusive workplace. Karen is the author of Better Allies, and after spending 25 years building software products and serving as a vice president of engineering at Macromedia and Adobe, Karen witnessed a sharp decline in the number of women working in tech. Frustrated but galvanized, she knew it was time to switch gears. Today, Karen is a leadership coach and an acclaimed author and speaker on inclusive workplaces. She's the author of three books, Better Allies, Everyday Actions to Create Inclusive, Engaging Workplaces, which just came out with its second edition, The Better Allies Approach to Hiring, and Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking. We had a really rich and provocative discussion today. Stay tuned. So happy to welcome my friend and colleague, Karen Catlin, to the show today. Karen, welcome to the Empathy Edge. Oh, Maria, it is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is such an important conversation. You know, you wrote Better Allies a few years ago now, and so much has changed in our society and and our world even since then. And your second edition is coming out or has come out and is here with us very soon. So we're excited for a lot of the updated content you're going to have around that. Tell us just quickly a little bit about your work and what you do with companies and organizations to help them be better allies. And then let's get into what does it mean to be an ally and what is allyship? Oh, how wonderful. I I love talking about all of this. Thank you for this opportunity. So first of all, I did not set out to become an author or to become a public speaker on this topic about inclusion in the workplace. It all happened because I started a coaching business after working in tech for a long time. I started a leadership coaching business to help women working in tech grow leadership skills, grow their careers, and so forth. But I soon realized that I had a problem with my coaching business. And the problem wasn't with my clients. They're all amazing. I don't think it was with me because 
you know, I'm working to be a good coach. Um, still have some work to do there, but I don't think it was me, my coaching skills. The problem was that they were all working in tech companies where the closer you got to the C-suite, to the CEO, just the mailer and paler it got. And <laughs> with all due respect to anyone who's male and or pale, I'm pale myself, um, who's listening. That's just what the demographics were and are in most of tech as well as other industries as well. So I started out, and this goes back six years now, I started out just with a Twitter handle to share what I saw were these simple everyday actions people could take to be more inclusive, to create more inclusive workplaces so that my coaching clients, as well as other people out there who are from underrepresented groups, either women or underrepresented because of their race, because of their abilities, disabilities, sexual orientation, you know, age, so forth. I wanted everyone who wanted to be working in these companies, and especially in tech where I focus, to have a chance to just thrive, to do their best work, to really feel that sense of belonging that allows us to feel like we belong here, we can be um, doing our best work, we're respected, and our work is respected. And that was not happening for my coaching clients 100% of the time. So the work I started doing really wasn't specifically like for my it wasn't, it was in service for my coaching clients, I'll call it. It wasn't stuff I was actually doing directly for them, but it was just trying to create this more inclusive attitude across all of tech. And of course, you know, it, 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 as I say these words, I'm smiling at myself. It's like, really, Karen, you thought you could make all of tech more inclusive? Um, <laughs> and I knew I wouldn't be, you know, couldn't do it by myself, but I wanted to try to just spread the word of these are some things you could do to be an ally. And I know you asked me to define that. I'll get to that. But the important thing was to be empathetic. And I know that is such an important theme for your work, but to be empathetic for people who are different from you, who don't have the same privilege, same experiences, and create a workplace where everyone can thrive. So that's that's where it all started. Today, fast forward now that I have written my book and my second edition has just come out, I do a lot of keynote speaking. So a lot of speaking and teaching workshops on this whole approach of being more inclusive with everyday actions. Um, a key part of my message is, yeah, it's important for companies to have offices of diversity, inclusion, belonging, and those chief diversity officers and so forth, because they're driving the top-down change, which is really important. But we also need people in every corner of an organization, in every meeting, in every casual interaction, in every Slack channel. We need people everywhere knowing that they should be on the lookout for how they could be more inclusive and take action when it's required. So I, I speak a lot about this approach of being more aware and what actions you can take. Yeah. So that's, that's the work I do. I love it. It's noble work and it's sorely needed. And so talk to us a little bit about what is meant by being an ally and allyship, because especially after, after the last year we've had, that is a term that has gained in favor, which, you know, as for me with empathy, it's a good thing, but there's always a, a two sides to that coin of people misunderstanding it or misusing it. So from the horse's mouth, let's hear what, how do you define being an ally and allyship and why is it so important? Yeah. So being an ally is it's very simple. It is using your position of privilege to create an opportunity for somebody else. Now, that's the simple definition. As we get down a layer, we have to talk, well, what does it mean to have privilege? Well, 
privilege definitely in our society here in the United States today, and especially again in tech, but other industries as well, privilege also often means you're a white man. And being a white man means that you have certain opportunities that other people just don't have and never have had. Now, here's the thing, two things about privilege. One is that it's not limited just to our race and gender. It also can become very nuanced almost um, and multi-threaded. Some other examples are things like, well, you're not a caregiver, which in today's society and with what we're all dealing with with the pandemic, caregiving responsibilities are intense at times. And so if you have no caregiving responsibilities, that's a source of privilege because you can spend your time how you want and especially be able to show up however it is at work, right? Exactly. Another thing might be that you actually have a um, a large enough living space so that you can have a home study, for example, mm-hmm. or a home office that is quiet and that you have good internet access. Another might be just that you have enough disposable income so that past the pandemic, when we all can get together again, you're not the one who's having to say, no, I can't go out for drinks after work today, you know, because I just can't afford it, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're you're not saying yes to those team building events, maybe on a weekend that aren't company paid for, such as let's all go whitewater rafting, you know, on Saturday or something like that, right? You've got enough money to say yes to those things and build your network, build those relationships. So it's very, those are just a couple examples, but, but privilege is pretty, um, as I said, multi-threaded. There's, there's a lot to it, right? Right. But it's important we understand it and not get defensive that we have this privilege. Privilege is just something we have because of these groups that we belong to, these societal groups. And it's tempting to get defensive because it feels like, you know, if I say to you, Maria, you're white, you've had it so easy, you might get a little defensive. I know I have, I don't, I don't mean to speak for you, but um, but yeah, because it's like, wait a second, I've had to work hard for everything I have here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe I went to a good university, but I worked while I was there. I took out loans, you know, all that you can think of all the hard things that you've done to get where you have, you are today. But we tend to get defensive because it feels like someone's just calling us a lazy whatever and that we haven't ever had to work hard to get where we are. Yeah, I think that's such an important message that privilege doesn't mean you haven't worked hard. Yes. Just like, you know, I've often heard the argument from many white males who say, I'm not privileged. I worked my way through school or I'm not privileged. I was middle-class growing up or I was lower middle-class growing up. So no one's taking those struggles and those challenges away from you when they say that you're privileged, but we all need to be self-aware enough to know where we've been lucky enough, not, I don't want to say luck, but where you've worked hard enough or been lucky enough or had the opportunities that other people don't have or haven't had. And so I think that's the thing is we need to let everyone be okay with saying, look at yourself, check yourself and see what your privilege is. I've heard from many of my black friends over the last few months and over the last year, talk about them examining their own privilege. For instance, Mm -hmm. one in particular was, was from a book I read where she talked about actually as a black person, she had to examine her own privilege growing up upper middle class you know, among other people she knew who didn't have those privileges. So there's a lot of intersectionality of, we just need to be self-aware enough to look at where we have privilege and where we have an advantage. And it does not take away our hard work or our dedication or our, our opportunity. 
Right, right. And I think that this is this wonderful intersection between your work on empathy and, and my work on allyship. If we don't understand the privilege we have, and especially, therefore, the privilege others don't have in the same way, it's hard for us to be empathetic. It's hard for us to be an ally. It's hard for us to know how we should stand up for someone if we haven't shared their their personal lived experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but when we're aware that, oh, there are differences, that's the first step, right? To being empathetic to someone who's different from us, to being an ally for someone who's different from us. Yeah. And I think the pandemic has laid a lot of that bare, just like you were talking about, about the different ways privilege shows up. I mean, we look at how educators are struggling with technology and all that's being asked of them. And you and I living right outside Silicon Valley, can we're very familiar with tech. We live, eat, and breathe tech. And we tend to forget that there's so many people who didn't know how to use Zoom or didn't know how to do you know, remote conference calls or whatever. We, we get in our little bubble and we forget. And a lot of that has been ripped open. The, the, the privilege of going to a private school, sending your kid to a private school versus a public school, all of these different things where they have the resources to reopen or they have the resources for PPE. I feel like all of these things have been revealed. Do you get that sense too, that there's a lot more privilege that has been cracked open and has hopefully opened people's eyes in the last year? Oh, well, so I think a lot has been revealed for the people who are paying attention. Um, Interesting. So I, I think that there are, Unfortunately, people who probably are just going through their lives, like, of course, everyone's got a, you know, high speed internet and can turn their video cameras on for any mm -hmm. meeting. Mm -hmm. Well, I've learned a best practice is don't demand that everyone turn their cameras on. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's wonderful and it's interactive and it's engaging when everyone does have cameras on, but there could be people who are, first of all, they've got a lot of distractions in the background because they're working in a busy household. Um, it may be that they are a person of color who usually goes to a hair salon on a regular basis to get their hair looking more white, I'll call it. For, I, I, I say that with all due respect. Um, it's straightening their, their otherwise very um, curly locks. And they might not have been able to do that recently because of the shutdowns. There could be so many reasons why people don't want to turn on their camera. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm going to embarrass myself, but I, I do this a lot, and I think it's um it's helpful to share these stories. At the beginning of the pandemic, I would joke with people. It's like, oh, you don't want to turn your camera on? Are you having a bad hair day? You know, something like that. Right, right. And then one person that that's it usually it gets laughs. People like, oh, I just haven't turned it on yet. Whatever. Mm -hmm. They turn it on. One time I was meeting with someone and she said, actually, I've just finished a round of chemo, so I feel more comfortable leaving it off. Let me tell you, Maria, I never ask that question again or make that, that yeah. kind of joke I thought was funny. I just don't want, I don't, I felt awful in the moment. She made me feel just fine. It wasn't a big deal, but I really felt like I had stepped over a personal bound that really wasn't, I, I shouldn't have done that. So right. anyway. Back to the pandemic, I think that that's just like some aspects of how we might not even realize we're not paying attention to how other people might be experiencing things, right? Or even without the pandemic, how you know our situation of I don't I'm not going through chemo, so of course I can turn on my camera and not worry about it, right? Yeah, I recently did a post a video about the fact that, and I I do not want to take credit for this quote because I think I saw it like six months ago somewhere in my social media feed, but this idea of like, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. 
So this idea of I'm experiencing the pandemic very differently from a lower income essential worker who can't pay their rent because they're the restaurant where they work closed or cut their hours. That's a very different experience of the pandemic. And I, I did that post with the idea of, you know, process the year, however you need to process it and look forward to 2021, however you need to look forward to it, because we have all these people going, count your blessings, find your silver linings, la la la. Some people didn't have silver linings in 2020. They lost loved ones. They lost businesses. So it's, we've all experienced the same thing globally, but again, we had different ships. We had different crafts. We had different boats. Some people that were in boats. Good, some people were in yachts. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, good imagery. I yeah. know. <laughs> so um, talk to me a little bit about what is that role? When, when you, let's say you do want to be an ally, which hopefully everyone does. What role does empathy play in that? And what if you don't feel like your empathy is very strong? What are some ways you see empathy playing a role in being an effective ally? Right, right. So definitely, I feel like the, the first step, I've already said this, the first step is really understanding that someone else's situation may be different from yours, and you can't discount it just because you've never experienced it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a part of empathy, too, is realizing even though I've never experienced someone just talking over me and me feeling like I can't get a word in edgewise in a meeting, just because I haven't experienced that doesn't mean that others you know, haven't experienced it. Um, And that goes with absolutely so many of our workplace situations where, again, someone in with a lot of privilege, a white man, for example, may just have never experienced some of these things that are going on. Um, Being the only person in the room and always in the meeting and always being asked, hey, hey, Joe, can you take the meeting minutes today? Because you're so good at it, Mm -hmm. Um, which happens so much to women. And there's research backing that up. And of course, it happens even more to women of color. Being the only woman of color in the room and being asked to do this office housework for the for supporting everyone else. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not their job. So again, you have to understand that if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm having a problem. I need need some support here. I need to tell you about something that's going on. Don't discount it as the first thing that comes out of your mouth. Don't think, I've never seen that happen. It couldn't be happening here. No, it could. And you need to believe people when they share their experiences and then think about how can I use my, my position to make a change here? So do you have a framework for clients or people or when you when you give your talks or do your workshops if let's say you have a company where the leaders are saying we know we need to be better we're mm-hmm. not sure where to start what kind of process do you recommend people follow or leaders follow to create a more inclusive workplace and I know we can't cover all of that in our time together but what what are some good what are some of those good places to start yes and i like to focus on the things that are just like every day. Um, so as I think about a framework, an everyday occurrence is who you're hanging out with, who you're networking with, who you're spending time with, who you're investing, getting to know their work. So step one is making sure that isn't just with people who look just like yourself, that you're actually um, taking time to meet the new employees who don't just remind you of your younger self, for example, and getting to know the work they're doing so that you can advocate for them and their career advancement sometime in the future. Could be tomorrow, could be next month, could be in you know six months at the half year annual review time. 
And so that's like one example. Another example of what happens all the time are meetings. So breaking down, here are some of the top themes of non-inclusive behavior in meetings. So I raise awareness, talk about that. I've already talked about the office housework, the interruptions. Another one is idea hijacking when someone might say say an idea, concept, doesn't really go anywhere, whatever, the conversation moves on. But then someone else says the same thing in the same meeting and gets all the credit. That's idea hijacking. Realize that's happening and look out for it. Once you're aware of some of these things, I also like giving these everyday actions you can take, not to shame anyone or blame anyone, but just to disrupt the status quo. So if you notice an interruption happening in a meeting, redirect the conversation with a simple, hey, I'd like to hear Maria finish her thought. You know, just something simple like that. Um, That idea hijacking, I see, hey, I see you agree with the idea Maria raised earlier in the meeting. Right. Um, Things like that. Office housework, just volunteer yourself if you are seeing um, someone like who can who can take the notes or who can round up all the missing people from this meeting and you know text them or slap them and get them out get them into the Zoom. Do that stuff yourself instead of assuming that the most junior woman or a woman of color in the room might be doing that or might be asked to do it. So my framework, just to answer your question, make sure it's clear is. What are some of these everyday scenarios, these situations that we are dealing with in the workplace? What are the non-inclusive behaviors? How can you disrupt the status quo with these simple everyday actions? So how do you think things have changed? Because I know, obviously, we talked about you wrote a first edition to this a few years ago, and now the second edition is, is here. What do you think has changed? Do you think that there's been a more positive shift to recognizing this as an issue what what was it that prompted you to write a second edition? Yes. So my first edition, while I did my best to curate, I'll call it curate and analyze research and anecdotal stories from all kinds of different diversity dimensions, I'll call it, not just on gender, but also on race, on disabilities, on the LGBTQ community. I did my best to do research on all of those areas, what was going on, what what are the social scientists finding out, the people who really do research. I just curate, I don't do original research myself, but I did my best to cover all sorts of different kinds of diversity um, in in the workplace and how to be inclusive with people from many different demographics. What has changed, and some of this simply because I spent more time looking at it. But what changed was on May 24th, 2020, when George Floyd was killed. It's unfortunate, and may he rest in peace, but so unfortunate that his death catalyzed so much conversation. I guess it's, I don't mean to say that's bad. It's good that that happened. It should have been happening so, you know, for for decades. But because of his death and how high, what a high profile situation it was, a lot of conversations were happening. And as a result, new research started to get done on, uh, for example, Black people at work, but also research that had been out for a while resurfaced and it got the attention it deserved. So I was able to find a lot more research, especially on supporting coworkers who are Black and being an ally for Black people if you're white. I found a lot of more research and many more anecdotal stories to include. But it doesn't stop there. I also through um, a number of ways, found a lot more research and, again, stories to share 
uh, for supporting people from the LGBT community, for supporting older people on you know, combating ageism in the workplace and so forth. So there's just so much more that I learned and I wanted to share it with all of the people who you know, purchased my book or are interested in reading it in the future. I've learned so much and I just wanted to yeah, get it out and share it with the world. What do you say, I'm going to throw a curveball question at you. What do you say to people who think that sometimes the worst allies in the workplace are people like them. So for example, I have experienced and other women I know have experienced that the worst allies for them in the workplace were other women in executive positions. And I have heard anecdotes from that, like in the VC community, that if there are underrepresented groups in power positions, they are actually the hardest on people that are up and coming. Did your research uncover anything around that and why that might be the case? Because the, the the natural assumption is that, oh, if you look like me as an underrepresented person, I'm going to be an ally to you. But that's not always the reality. Yeah, I, um, I don't cover that in my book. What I have found, though, is the narrative you're sharing is more of an outlier situation. You've, you've had maybe one instance of that. But I bet that there were, you know, in your in your career, Maria, I, I, I'm speaking on well, whatever. I bet that there were so many times that you didn't even know men were not supporting you, that those rooms that you are not even in where people are talking about, oh, let's do a reorganization and figure out the new or the new org chart or let's figure out who really deserves those promotions or those top salary in, increases. You don't know who's supporting you or not. And I have a feeling that you just didn't even know that there weren't men supporting you. So I, I'm afraid that those narratives of the um, the one woman in leadership wasn't, you know, was the worst ally to somebody who's a woman who is up and coming. I think that those are outliers, outlier stories. I think that they do a disservice also to what we've seen, because I've seen so many alternative versions of that story where the, um, the women in leadership are the best allies. Um, so th- that's my two cents on that. That's good. No, I'm glad because I think we do need to to bust these myths, even if potentially they were our experiences, to know that that's maybe not happening at the grand scale, that that's a convenient, it could be a convenient narrative for certain groups to be saying that's the case. So um, I'm glad that you are presenting that point of view. So what do you say to someone who is working in an organization that is not necessarily the head of the organization, but they individually are going to take action to create a more inclusive workplace? You talked a little bit about how to act in meetings, how to be a little bit more self-aware. What can people do to start to try to change the culture within their own organization to create that culture of allyship and inclusivity? Yes. I am a big believer in the ripple effect, the ripple effect of, you know, you drop that single pebble in the water and it it grows and gets bigger. And I think that we see that in organizations. I have a story I'll share. When I started my career a long time ago, we, I worked in a research institute and we got funding from nonprofit organizations, as well as large tech companies to do the research we were working on. And my boss one time went to Microsoft to pitch the work we were doing, get some support, financial support, hopefully. And this was when Bill Gates was still involved, chairman, CEO, um, it was a long time ago. Anyway, that's just context. So my boss came back from this meeting at Microsoft and said, it was a strange thing happened. 
I was presenting our work in a large conference room where you know, people were seated, seated around the table and all of them sat in their chairs, leaning way back with their hands behind their heads, like just really relaxed, like listening to me. I've never been in a meeting like that before. So after my presentation, I asked my host, like, what's it? What's up with Microsoft people? Why does everyone sit like that? And he started laughing and he said, oh, that's because that's how Bill sits. Okay. So Bill Gates had, I guess, has this very relaxed kind of stance. Right. Hands behind meetings. his head, leaning back. Yeah. Right. So that's an example of a ripple effect of mm-hmm. how one person's just how they show up causes people around them to to show up the same way. And those ripple effects can have long lasting impact even beyond the kind of the the lifetime of that one person who's making those changes or that one, the employment of that one person. In fact, I was sharing the same story that I just shared with you this summer with someone who works at Microsoft. And she said, oh, Karen, Bill Gates stopped being in an operating role. Maybe it's like seven or eight years ago. But I started at Microsoft only about four years ago, and my new boss did exactly the same thing in our first <laughs> meeting. So, so my point is, these things, you know, they carry on. They become right. part of a culture. And so for anyone who wants, who's thinking, I want to have that kind of ripple effect, you got to get started. Choose a couple of things um, to just start doing differently and see if you can't get other people around you to just start picking those up those behaviors up and acting in a different way as well. I'll also say, and this is because I think this is, this gets to like habit change, like how, you know, how you're bringing in new techniques into your kind of your um, daily life and all of that. I send out a newsletter every week called five ally actions, because I know it's hard to remember to keep doing these things and to keep evolving and moving forward on this journey when we're all so busy with so many other things So my goal is, well, every week, if I send out five ideas of something someone could do, maybe one will stick, you know, that's enough. And if they start trying that out and trying it on for size, working into their day to day, the way they show up, hopefully that's going to have some lasting impact. Well, you and I think very much alike because that is the whole crux of the empathy edge is, is start where you are and be the model for other people. And when they start to see you being successful acting that way, they're going to want to mimic your behavior. They're going to go, oh, I see how success can happen here because I see Karen acting this way and I'm going to model her as a, as a role model for success. And you could be at any level in the organization and prove that. So exactly. I love exactly. that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, Karen, how can folks get in touch with you? Where can they find out more about the new edition and also just connect with you? Yes. So betterallies.com is the website that has all the information about the book and my newsletter. And I'm very active on Twitter at, at betterallies and Instagram, same handle at betterallies. So we'd love to see some people there. I would love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I think this is a really important conversation to be having and I wish you the best of success with the book. So thanks for coming on today. Thank you, Maria. It was a pleasure. I always love talking with you. We don't do this enough. We don't, we don't. (laughs) And thank you everyone for listening. If you liked the episode, please remember to rate and review it and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And in the meantime, don't forget that empathy is not just good for society. It's actually good for business. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Empathy Edge. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Tremendous success.